Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Unless you live under a rock, you know esports is huge. Back about 30 episodes ago, we heard from Thomas Ravalid, CEO and Director of Brand Partnerships at Australian Esports Media Group. Now, since then, esports has just gotten bigger and bigger, and you'd be naive to think that esports isn't a significant player in the sponsorship industry and a key engager, most importantly, of an important demographic for many brands. In 2016, esports classified a total of about 148 million people as esports enthusiasts, up from 131 million the year before. In 2019, next year, that figure is expected to be around 215 million esports enthusiasts. Just this week, Epic Games announced it will provide 1 million in prize pool money for Fortnite competitions in the first year of competitive play. It's an eye-popping figure that puts the game in the upper echelon of esports with regard to monetary prizes, and official Fortnite competitions are slated to start sometime later this year. It's a fair progression for a game. It isn't even a year old. With at least 45 million players, Fortnite competitions are definitely set to attract some significant viewers and attention from sponsors. Not only are brands taking notice, even the International Olympic Committee is, with a summit to be held in July this year to discuss the possibility of esports being included in future editions of the Olympics. IOC President Thomas Bark will meet with key players from the competitive gaming industry at the end of July, and the summit will seek to provide the Olympic body with more information about esports, and it could definitely be a stepping stone to competitive gaming featuring at Olympic Games. Late in 2017, Essendon Bombers Football Club, a Melbourne-based team who compete in the Australian Rules Football League and who boast a membership of just over 69,000 people, the sixth highest of the 18 clubs in the competition, acquired Abyss Esports team in partnership with Executive Sports and Entertainment and it included a full rebranding of the team to the Bombers and full integration with the football club and its operations. Rowan Sawyer is the Managing Director of Executive Sports and Entertainment and is also the Executive Director of Bombers Esports and he joins us later in the show to discuss their commercial program as well as his experiences as GM Commercial and Marketing at the Rugby League World Cup in 2017 and Head of Commercial at the Australian Turf Club. I'm your host Daniel Oyston. Welcome to episode 57 of Inside Sponsorship. Sorry for the long intro, but I did think it was really important to just consolidate and set the scene again around esports at the moment, and it's certainly a fascinating chat with Rowan later on in the show. Now, normally it would be time to do some shout-outs to listeners who have gotten in touch just to say hi, let us know what they are up to. But alas, this time we don't have any. So no matter who you are or where you work, help me out. Shoot me an email, introduce yourself, let me know what you're up to, where you work. We'd love to hear from you. You can catch me on daniel at sponserve.net. Find me on LinkedIn or just search for Sponserve on social media and get in touch through those channels. Also joining us on the show, as usual, to discuss his latest blog is Sponserve's general manager, product, Sam Irvine, who has looked at why working with your charity partners has become more than just a donation. Here's Sam. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Daniel. I've done my fair share of uh, tin rattling. I should have had a little prop to, to rattle <laughs> some coins, but I've done my fair share of tin rattling at charities at local rights holders events. And, and it's a tough gig. And yes, while you make some much welcomed cash and, and, and money for the charity, the execution with charity partners can and has in many cases evolved to so much more and ultimately provide all the 
parties involved way more value, hasn't it? You're right, actually. It's funny. I um, I was sitting down at the airport and I was telling you before, thanks to a delayed flight, and got the chance to really flesh out this blog that I've just written around charity partnerships and how they are much more than a donation. And I was remembering uh, back when I was in more involved with rights holders when you would allocate each round, this is our Ronald McDonald House round and this is our breast cancer round, et cetera, right? And and it was about giving them some cash from the day. And it, it was so resource heavy. It was so it was non outcome driven. And really it was almost guilt driven in a way as well. It was uh, Ob- obligation. Exactly. And yeah. so that's where I've sort of realised, and you're seeing a lot of it through um, self-promotion by by clubs or rights holders and by brands as well about different things they're doing now with charity partners because they they have a greater message to tell, to sell rather than tin rattling. And and it's not a great combination. Rights holders, particularly in the commercial area, aren't flushed with resources. Charities are generally flushed with resources and you bring those two together and, and sometimes a default can just be, oh, well, just come and sell your raffle tickets or, or, or rattle your tins. Yeah. But as I said at the start, so much more value can be gained if we, we do some planning, we look at some examples of how working with charities and community groups can be executed to provide so much more value and that's going to be the topic of yeah. our chat. We're going to have a look at a couple of things. You've gone through and, and found some great examples where rights holders and brands have worked together to bring a charity in either a round event or, or over a longer period. So what's the first one we've taken a look at? The first one I sort of looked at was major parties, partners, sorry, allocating a charity partner branding positioning on a key asset. Now that might include like front of jersey, for example, or, or even stadium naming rights for a particular particularly a game or round and and two that really stuck to my memory really quickly were the Canberra Raiders doing lots of work with the Ricky Stewart Foundation now he's their coach for anyone listening outside of Australia um, but he's and that foundation is set up in a direct response to the challenges his daughter has yeah directly so that so that has so many good stories in it in itself alone right but the minute that Huawei their major partner on the front of jersey is able to give up that positioning on for a particular round and hand it over and, and provide that branding and awareness for a really really good cause i think really helps huawei in a roundabout way right and that's what i've sort of talked about there is that even though a lot of these brands will give up a spot and a good example is, is lotto land as well in uh for manly in the nrl as well giving up the naming rights for the round at, at um out at manly there to the um McGraw McGraw Foundation, Foundation, Breast Cancer Cancer, um, Foundation there. And so what both of those brands, I think, are getting in a roundabout way is a lot of that goodwill. They're getting some additional sort of exposure anyway because everyone's talking about this story. Well, well, what's interesting is, and it's just my thought on the run, I haven't got any scientific evidence to back this up, but I would imagine that if a – a venue is called the same thing all the time or there's the same sponsor on the front of the shirt and then bang, one week, it's completely different. That's probably more eye-gauging and in catching, eye-catching and there's a conversation about, oh, what's on the front of their shirt? And they look it up, they see the charity, they maybe become involved, they make a donation. But that also provides some goodwill to the brand that has had that asset for a long time because people go, oh, that brand gave that up, Huawei gave that up, that's that's great. And even that's still bringing them into their conscious a little bit more, isn't it? Definitely bringing them into their conscious, perfect point you've made there as well. And I think with 
an activation or an, you know, doing that themselves Huawei have actually sort of come out and, and looked like a fantastic partner. But at the same time, we don't as consumers sit back and we're not skeptical of that. We're not sitting back and going, oh, there's an, I'm sure there's an ulterior motive here, right? <laughs> Where a lot of the time in It's this every space, other day from the brand. Exactly. We are, yeah, we are in general, right? Are they we're, trying to sell us? <laughs> And we're actually, so for me, that's why it's so valuable. And you see it with, I mean, a good example, the Roosters do it well with Steggles, where for certain rounds they will um, keep the font type but change the name. And it might be for like a particular, for ladies round in, in uh, women's round in league, they've gone and, and put some mum's names in, in on the front of jerseys and things like that. So different ways of still using your brand. So you're still getting your name out there in a different way and having a great conversation about it. Yeah, so maybe just look at some of those assets that, you know, you think your existing partners might give up for a week or a certain period of time, look at your charity partners. And, and you know, you, you're also in uh, introducing those charities to some big corporates and there can be some benefits for those two, not just the rights holder, right? Mm, no, definitely. All right. So major partners allocating a charity partner branding positioning on a key asset, like a jersey or a stadium. That's mm. number one. What else have you got? Number two was, and this is more of a generic sort of comment around utilising benefits for charitable purposes. And so what I mean by this is we're seeing more and more commercial partners start to gift off or utilize benefits such as a hospitality box, tickets to an event, um, to charity partners to either they can then either auction off or utilize as a gift for some key members or even a charity partner can then go and reuse that to service a different partner, right? So they're able to actually use these benefits in a, in a really positive way. Most times brands won't be doing this to get that brand exposure or to be telling a story about it. It's pretty rare that you'll see a media release. It's not something they're trying to activate to to achieve some marketing Mm. objectives, is it? No, but a lot of the time that in a roundabout way that still occurred, right? Because when the story does get out in a more organic way, then really that brand awareness or that brand – the commitment to that brand is really increased, right? So as a as a society, we've gone, what a fantastic thing to do. And they've really shone a positive light on what they're doing and they haven't had to actively go out and look to be seen to be marketing it in that space. Yeah, well, and a great example that came to mind while you were talking about that was I, I volunteer at a local charity. They're involved with the Canberra Raiders here, uh, the, the local rugby league team. The Raiders donated a box to Men's Link, that's the charity. Men's Link basically just said to me, because I've been involved for a long time, why don't you take the box, invite all the other people involved with Men's Link as a thank you, and if you can't get enough people to come for whatever reason, then you can just use the tickets to invite people. So I invited people from my network because a few people from Men's Link came. But what that actually did was there were some conversations in that private Mm -hmm. box around the charity, not just, oh, well, I'm coming to the football and enjoying the food and the drink. They're like, mm. well, so how come you've got the box this week? Well, it's Men's Link and oh, how long have you been involved with mm. Men's Link and what do they do? Geez, that sounds really good. And then there's that positive. How many more ambassadors have yeah, you created? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just that conversation in the community about mm. the important work that they do. Mm. So it's not just about going, here's, here's a, a benefit that you can use, use mm. it for your internal staff. Charities can then use it to bring people into the fold, just like a normal uh, sponsor who might have hospitality boxes might use to build relationships, no, exactly. both and internal and external relationships, staff with or with suppliers or volunteers. And I think too that shines a positive light on the rights holder because then people are sitting down going, oh, oh so Raiders, I wasn't aware they're working with Men's Link yeah. and I wasn't aware of the good stuff that Men's Link do. So that 
positive association there really shines through, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so utilising benefits for charitable purposes, that was the second one. What have we got next? Player appearances. Now, this is a really simple but quite meaningful way for a rights holder and a commercial partner to engage with a charity partner. So bringing all three of those together again, I think is really cool. Now, the way that I would sort of look to try to do this quite strategically would be, and really in a meaningful way too, would be to identify a player, a coach, a staff member, whatever it might be, someone that has a personal story or personal connection to a particular charity and a real meaningful reason to engage with them. And then really identify what event do we want something to you know create a little bit of exposure and things like that right but so this might potentially help create some brand awareness some brand loyalty potentially but for me what it is is being able to create some really engaging content oh, yeah. that gives the brand the rights holder and the charity a whole new story to tell and a reason to tell it it's not just about pumping our tires up going and kissing babies it's about actually a reason for going to a hospital or a reason for really being in an event yeah and the cool thing there is you can either create that content as a as a three-way together or you could all create different content yourself to tell it from different perspectives so there's that that type of content can be cut many different mm. ways it's really rich mm. there mm. Mm. no definitely very good so player mm. appearances anything yeah. else and the final one i think for me that's that shone through in a number of ways and and this isn't exactly like a, a charitable or relationship as such but what we're seeing is what I like to call grassroots grants. And so we're seeing lots of brands come and work with rights holders and offer up the opportunity for those grassroots clubs, players, whatever they might be, families, to access a different type of funding. And so rather than this being money that goes directly to the rights holder, you've got companies like Toyota, NAB, Summerland Football, for example, coming and going directly to clubs and going, here's some access to funds for some really cool things that you're doing. And so whether it be, you know, uh, Toyota and local cricket clubs or, or, or some of the stuff NAB are doing with AFL clubs, I think them being able to tell a story about how they're helping those clubs directly or helping those individuals directly, um, creating some really cool content, they're great, creating some brand awareness, but really that brand loyalty is shining through big time there, I think. So that's, that's one of the things I think is quite key. And, and particularly when you hear, and I use the word loosely, uh, a lot of whinging around the cost of kids participating in sport. I saw a comment online the other day. Uh, some football areas in Australia are charging uh, kids $2,000 to play a season. So, you know, yes, there's that relieving the financial burden, but that creates some some loyalty, some brand awareness, some and, and ultimately some some massive appreciation from the people that are benefiting, benefiting from that money if the grassroots rights holders actually tell the story about where the money's coming from not just oh guess what this year it's only 1500 don't tell anybody where yes. the money came yeah, from yeah you're right, right sending that through but i think often in a rights holder space especially if you're involved in a member federation type setup where you may be a state federation with clubs underneath you is we often get feedback from clubs of what's in it for us so why are we putting up that sign for that sponsor what's in it for us and i think that's this circumvents those conversations Mm. because you're going, well, now our partner's working directly with you and giving you those opportunities because of the relationship we have. And at the same time, that brand becomes a core part of that local community. And so really that brand awareness and and really the brand loyalty has a huge potential to really flourish there. So all those initiatives that you've mentioned, so major partners allocating a charity partner branding positioning uh, on a key asset, utilising benefits for charitable purposes, 
player appearances and grassroots grants. All those initiatives provide a truly valuable opportunity for both brands and rights holders to align their values with a, a particular charity or a community organisation. And I think, though, with that too, I think one of the – I was having a discussion with a colleague the other day, and without sort of putting a negative slant on, on, the, whole com- on the whole discussion is that – it's an opportunity if, as a club, if you've done some, if you've had, a, you know, had a bad couple of months, whether it be some accusations of anything negative in the press, it does give you an opportunity to sell a positive story. Mm. And so you don't want to be using these partnerships for the wrong reasons, but it can be an opportunity to tell a positive a ba- well, story. Well, it's, it's an opportunity to tell a balanced story because I don't think clubs ever shy away from, yeah, look, sometimes our staff or players or our organisation stuff up and that has negative consequences. Mm. They try and limit the damage. But it is an opportunity to tell a balanced story because Mm. a lot of these rights holders and a lot of the players do some fantastic and some critical and really important community work and they want to. So Mm. for me, the key here is always around the content that you can create, the stories that you can create, the engagement that you can create Mm. around those. And and there's some some really great examples. So listeners, if you want to... Uh, go over those in detail. Just head along to sponsor.net, head to the blog section where Sam's put it all in writing for you so you can read it in your own time. Thanks for that. Thanks very much. Now, Neil. you're in Adelaide next week. Are yeah, you there on Thursday? Com- yes, just as this will come out. Very so good. I might have a, a spot or two if anyone in Adelaide's listening. Catch up for a Coopers <laughs> or maybe a trip out, of, out to uh, McLaren Vale. Yeah, Is that what you're doing idea. down there? <laughs> Don't tell Tom. <laughs> Enjoy your trip. Thanks, mate. Rowan Sawyer is the Managing Director of Executive Sports and Entertainment who, in partnership with the Essendon Bombers Football Club, acquired Abyss Esports team. It included the team relocating to Melbourne from Sydney as well as full rebranding of the team to the Bombers and full integration with the football club's operations. And not only is Rowan the Managing Director of Executive Sports and Entertainment, he is also the Executive Director of Bombers Esports and he joins us to discuss their commercial program as well as his experiences as GM Commercial Marketing at the Rugby League World Cup 2017 and Head of Commercial at the Australian Turf Club. Here's Rowan. Rowan Sawyer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Rowan, when you were a little kid, did you always want to work in sponsorship? I'm not sure that uh, I wanted to work in sponsorship, but i you know passionate about sport and I think at some stage everyone looks at sport and would love to work with inside sport. I, I, you probably wanted to be on the other side and, and be the sponsored player. i I always wanted to you know, either play for the Kangaroos or play for the Australian cricket team and have plenty of sponsors, but uh, lack of ability probably um, voided both of those career paths. But a passion for sport was something that I'd always had. Uh, I actually worked in investment banking for 10 years and then decided that uh, it was time to follow a passion and jumped across and became an administrator in sport uh, seven years ago now. Oh, and we're going to talk, part of that is working in esports, and we're going to talk about esports a fair bit in this episode. So I'm keen to know what video game was your favourite when you were a child? I probably had two um, that stand out when I when I think about it. Um, and I don't know if too many people will remember this. I'm pretty sure it was a Sega game. It was called Shinobi. Um, it was a, a ninja game, a scrolling single screen Ninja game, which was uh, uh, where I spent most of my youth wasted away playing uh, playing that, which, you know, 30 years on and I'd probably be getting paid lots of money um, to do it. Um, and the other one was Daly Thompson's Decathlon. Yes. Uh, where you used to have to go get a footy sock and put Vaseline on it to get extra speed um, as, you, as, you, as you found every way to find an advantage to get that bloke to run as fast as he could or long jump. So they were definitely the two that uh, 
I love and remember as a kid. <laughs> Very good. Fast forward a number of years, and one of your previous roles was as the general manager, commercial and marketing for the Rugby League World Cup 2017, which was in Australia last year. A lot of the focus on the tournament obviously ramps up as it draws nearer. However, the premier competition in the world, in Australia, the NRL, was still running as that ramping up was happening and obviously building up to their own finals and end of season. What were some of the challenges of working within that and how did you overcome them? Yeah, I think you touched on it pretty well there and no doubt the NRL is you know, the pinnacle of, of tournaments around the world and goes for 26 rounds and then we needed to roll into another five weeks of World Cup and it was something, you know, as, as head of the marketing team as well as a commercial team, we were very conscious of. Uh, we actually coined a, a phrase amongst us, which was league fatigue, uh, and how did we overcome consumers and fans getting, you know, sick of rugby league on the screens um, or attending games throughout a sustained period, you know, as you went through State of Origins final series, and then a burst uh, into what was a five-week campaign for us. And it was all about storytelling for us. And I think we were lucky we had a couple of things go our way with eligibility rules and and players switching, um, which I think with any tournament, whether you be a Rugby League World Cup, whether you be an Olympic Games, um, whether you be a FIFA World Cup, there's always that, that underdog story or a story that comes out that you can never actually plan for, but it's what you do to capture. Uh, that momentum and imagination and obviously we had that with the Tongan team uh, and as soon as we we had the the team switches with uh, Fafita and the like uh, we decided to really shift our focus back to cultural traditions and the storytelling of why these guys were so passionate um, to go back and, and play for home countries. Luckily enough we'd already built a campaign uh, which was deemed the nobody's campaign um, and it wasn't a derogatory term but it was very much around there's an exceptional amount of unique athletes that uh, the NRL fans may or may not have heard before. And it was the the people that you may underestimate or the, the teams that aren't chock full of the NRL superstars or the, or the Super League superstars um, that when you put them together and you put on a national jersey and you give them pride, um, it's the teams that you can least suspect uh, can be the teams that hurt you. So um, we really then drilled down into the clubs and started having a chat to the clubs around players that may not be necessarily playing for these top-tier countries. So Australia, uh, England and New Zealand, we started to drop down the next tiers and getting the clubs to start to highlight these players in their end-of-season campaigns about which countries they'd be playing for so that we're actually activating and creating a, a sense of tribalism amongst fans who, you know, majority of people that sit in Australia or born in Australia probably follow the Kangaroos. But, you know, if Parramatta had a player that played for Fiji, how do we sort of make Parramatta fans, their second team becomes Fiji because their player plays for Fiji. So uh, we used a company called The Front Rowers who were great with us in creating these really uh, bespoke content pieces. We started to activate the clubs and their players that played for them in different nations outside of the top tiers. Uh, and then we started to to really ramp that up as the, the squad got announced and the teams got announced. So we used the NRL and, and try to harness the power of, of its reach um, by then diving into to players that may or may not be selected, people who have switched and then started to build up the profiles of uh, of the Nobody's campaign. And, you know, we had Fiji go through to a to a semi-final and beat New Zealand. And, uh, we, you know, we had Tonga within an inch of uh, getting through to a, a World Cup final, which would have been the first. So um, 
some great stories that, that came out of it, but allowed us to, to really build this marketing platform that the world's best players uh, were coming and doesn't matter what jersey they're wearing, there's a, there's a threat across the park from whichever team's come along. I love that. I think it's a fantastic angle and the, and the story's really engaging and particularly plays on that, that under, underdog angle that everybody loves a story around an underdog. Now, Ron, the Rugby League World Cup is a global event and sponsors aren't just focused on Australian audiences with Australia obviously being the host. What sort of approach or things did you have to consider in activating sponsors for a global event while you were based in Australia and the event is being executed in Australia? Yeah, it, it's it's a challenge, that's for sure. It, it, I guess from our perspective, we were we were try hosts in in our tournament, so it was Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea. So, not only did we have local markets, if you'd like to call them that, in Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea, but we then had the tournament markets, which sat across each three of those, and then we had the global market that we were speaking to. Uh, we had 110 broadcast partners uh, that it went out to to those countries across the globe. So. Uh, branding, communication, the messaging that goes out. And, you know, when you have a look at people like KFC and Izuzu, who are major partners of the tournament for us, they're, they're global brands uh, and have global reach. And they were probably more conscious than, I guess, your local domestic brands um, would have been around what that messaging was to engage. And it was very much a client-by-client client basis as to, to where we were going to reach and what that message would be. And uh, at the end of the day, sometimes a lot of it came down to speaking to different regional and marketing heads outside of Australia um, as to what their campaigns were, what they were trying to do in those markets and how we could have a, a, a domestic campaign that was focused in and around leveraging their partnership with the World Cup but wouldn't fall on deaf ears when it got into other markets. Um, so that was a, a great challenge and something that we worked with by, by client by client who had a global reach and Coca-Cola was another one of those. You know, the differences between Australia and Papua New Guinea from a Coca-Cola perspective was an interesting one for us as well to work through. Um, some products aren't there, some products aren't. So what messaging we had um, to be able to translate across that. I think one of the great learnings uh, for myself and um, for anyone out there who does a, an international event um, is something that was a, was a major challenge for us in tournament um, and at times kept me up uh, was KFC uh, and our sponsorship uh, with broadcast into global markets. Obviously, clean feeds are provided uh, into global markets. And in Australia, we have virtual on-pitch signage and, and LED signage. Uh, the messaging of that going into international markets, depending on their laws and regulations around promotion of fast foods, um, becomes a real challenge for you. Uh, we had an issue up with the UK and the BBC being a free-to-air broadcaster in the UK because of the time zone difference. Most games were going in early morning uh, and there's restrictions uh, in their broadcasting guidelines around the timing of when fast food can be promoted. Um, so some of the creatives that we had in the domestic markets, which were call to actions or offers, um, albeit were in Australian dollars and had Australia or New Zealand only on them, weren't allowed to be displayed in the UK because it was essentially going in breakfast time. Um, so English games, we had to tweak and change creative content and message that were going back to the BBC. That created a challenge for us when we started to plan for quarterfinals and semifinals because you don't know which side of the pool England were going to get to if they did get to that. Um, and then having short lead-up times and short run times to change those messages going into the market. So as much as it, it's about the promotion and the positive about going into 
the broader markets. It's uh, it's really opening about legislation and broadcast legislation in other regions when you start to promote certain brands into those markets, even though those brands exist there. Um, the rules, obviously, on a global basis can change significantly. Very, very interesting. What, what about in terms of activations? What were some of your favourite activations from the Rugby League World Cup and why do you think they work so well? I, I was, when I was thinking about activations, um, you know, various clients do various things to, to have outcomes and, and mostly that is to engage or put their brand uh, into the fan. Um, and the attendees of the events to, to make sure they get touch and feel. And I won't sort of single out a specific brand or partner, nearly all of our partners activated, but I think what we did in collaboration with all the partners uh, at the back end of the tournament was uh, an event called Finals Fest, uh, which we hosted in King George Square. Uh, it was a, a major beast to put together. We had a partnership with TEQ and, you know, and the promotion of Queensland, for all those roads lead to the final for, for attendance. We did a partnership uh, with Brisbane Marketing, um, who were very much focused on Brisbane as the city versus TQ and, and Queensland. And we then did a, a partnership with the Lord Mayor, who owned King George's Square. And we, we were the first time ever uh, that a sport or a code or even an event had the whole of King George Square as an exclusive space for two days. Um, if people who know Brisbane, thoroughfare of the city sits right in the middle out of the front of the town hall. Uh, it has up to, I believe it's about two or 300,000 people travel through the space on a daily basis. Wow. Being a, being a hub in the city for commuters in and out. And we went to all our partners uh, to create this space over two days, which was the Friday and Saturday leading into the final. Uh, and we they all brought their activations. So we had Crownbet in their, their skill-based passing contest, which was a leaderboard um, digitally activated for people to be in there. Isuzu had their trucks and their cars. Uh, Treasury Wines uh, had the nest that they bought into that space. So I think it was a collaboration across all our partners, um, our government partners and nearly all stakeholders. Uh, we had live acts. We had players come on the Friday night. It was the combination of a group of partners working together um, versus against each other, which you know sometimes is a challenge when you run events and, and have multiple partners. But um, the collaboration of everyone working together, you know, one plus one actually equaled three. Um, and we created this fantastic event that operated over two days. The final was live in the square. You know, we had hundreds of thousands of people go through that space over a two-day period. And I think from an ability to reach and touch consumers, whether they were there for Rugby League World Cup or there just from an event perspective itself for Finals Fest, uh, was a huge result for all partners. And, you know, each of them had different touch points and different levels of engagement. But I think across everything that we did, it, it ticked multiple boxes. Certainly sounds like it would have been good fun. Rowan, from the Rugby League World Cup 2017, you're now Managing Director at Executive Sports and Entertainment. Tell us about how ESE came to be, including the type of work that you do to help organisations on the commercial and sponsorship fronts. Yeah, so ESE, uh, we're a, a relatively new agency in the sense that we've we've relaunched uh, a business. My business partner, Leon Spelson, I said over 30 years in the sports and entertainment business, uh, Leon and I had worked on a number of projects throughout our time, uh, throughout sport, uh, and I was coming off the back of, of Rugby League World Cup, and we decided that there was an opportunity to to go out into the marketplace and, and become an agency, and I think every agency says that they're unique and different to everyone else. Um, <laughs> that's, that's typically the sellout there, but 
what we did uh, and has created a great level of success and, and interest in our business um, is focus very much in and around um, the outcomes of strategy and, and delivery. And to probably, you know, boil that down um, to, to the most concise theory is we're not we're not here to be strategy people. Um, you know, we, I come from an investment banking background where I worked in strategy, so that's my background. But most businesses these days are, are heavily data data driven. Um, they spend a lot of time and effort researching their consumer base. They have internal teams. They have large marketing teams that actually work on that basis um, in and around what they do um, to do that. So um, most people know who their consumer are, uh, and it's not necessarily for us to to tell them who that consumer is. What we do then is actually dive down into the strategy work that they have already done uh, and figure out how we can tap into that strategy to deliver commercial outcomes. So uh, we work with the strategy teams, we work with the marketing teams to understand that consumer more and then work on what projects they may be able to do to deliver that. So, for instance, they may come to us and say, I've got a consumer market. I need to target males 18 to 35 is what we're looking to do. Uh, we think sport is our platform. We then sit down with those guys and have a look at what sports actually ticks that box, um, what opportunities or assets are out there that allows us to have you know, a call to action or whatever it may be they want to do. So if they want to sell something, they obviously want to be in front of that consumer with a touch point or a call to action. And we go around, we speak to the rights holders, we speak to brands and we come up with um, the strategy-based outcomes that they're looking for to to deliver that partnership. So it may be a little bit of brand, it may be a little bit of database communication, it may be digital assets. Uh, we build that out. You know, ultimately our job is to to find the right fit for them and find the best deal for them um, that is cost-effective. But at the end of the day, it's not always about price; it's about delivery uh, and making sure the partner on the other side can deliver for us. Uh, and then we run that end-to-end process for for a lot of the clients uh, in that space from you know, pitching out briefs to creative agencies to the actual event day activation um, to making sure that we wrap up reporting and what the renewal process may look like or what, what it goes on from there. So that's where we've really found the niche in the business. Um, we also do uh, a fair bit of major events, hospitality, Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, World Cups for, for large brands and take VIP groups for those guys. We do event management, project management for businesses like Magic Millions, which is an end-to-end process of that week of events up on the Gold Coast, uh, which is fantastic for us. Uh, and esports is now a uh, significant part of our business. It probably makes up anywhere between 40 and 50% of our business now, which is exciting. And we, we probably pride ourselves on being one of the the premier esports agencies in, in, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I think that's come through nearly three years of work in the space from a traditional com- commercial sports background unlike uh others that that may not have been in that space and that journey started for us uh three years ago and you know started from a team ownership perspective just on two years ago now when we were one of the first private investors into to the esports space here in in australia uh where we purchased a, a license and a team inside the oceanic pro league with riot for league of legends great segue to what's my next question actually so as you said ESC in partnership with Essendon Football Club, the Bombers, who are an Australian Rules football club based in Melbourne, Australia. 
acquired Abyss Esports Club to compete in the League of Legends Oceanic Pro League and Oceanic Challenger League. We've seen football clubs around the world sign FIFA players, for example. There's an obvious synergy there, but what's the attraction of an AFL team being involved in esports? It's a very, very good question, and I'd probably get asked uh, this question more often than not, and at most dinner tables or functions these days, I get asked, tell us about your computer game team. So um, it's very, very topical at the moment. Uh, obviously, esports globally is is booming. Um, I think there needs to be a little bit of cold water poured on the Australian industry at this stage. We are a growing industry and we've got significant growth, but we still are small. It, uh, it scares me a little bit when people start to throw massive numbers out there and Big opportunities, 1.5 billion 2020. Uh, we're far from that uh, in this country, but we've got a good, solid community. We've got good audiences that are engaged, and we're growing. And that, and that's the story. We're not, uh, we're not there with the big boys yet, and we need to, to take baby steps in doing it. And I think when, when we first purchased this team, uh, my view was always that partnering with a traditional football club, whether it be rugby league or, or AFL, was the way to go. And the reason being, when you have a look at a, an esports team, uh, the functional areas that sit inside an esports team are no different to any traditional sporting team. So, we have a membership program, we have licensing merchandise, we have sponsors to the program, we produce our own content, we have our own digital channels. It's broadcast on TV. So, you know, you can roll you could roll that model into any traditional sporting club, and they'd have people sitting in that functional area. So, why try to rebuild and create that themselves when the systems and processes are already in play? with major clubs, with better resources, with better insights and skills and trying to build that from a base level, but putting an esports tilt on it to make sure that it's authentic to the audience. So uh, we met with three NRL clubs and we met with three AFL clubs uh, who were interested to, to take a, an investment inside our business. And we settled with with the Bombers. And, and to be honest, they've been absolutely amazing. Uh, we're a joint venture 50-50 partnership and we couldn't be happier working with Justin Rodsky and the, and the team and to Xavier Campbell, the guys who, you know, really backed this um, from a, a senior executive level and a board level. Um, and the reason that we, we liked the Bombers was probably the, the first question that I used to ask all these guys when we, we sort of sat down to, to try to get a marriage done uh, was why do you want to be in esports? And of the, the six that we met with, probably four started with because I hear it's big um, and pens went straight through those those organisations because it's not and that's not the reason why you want to be in this space and Essendon approached us and told us that they had an issue in their membership um, 13 to 25 was quite weak they were trying to grow that base they've just ticked over 70,000 members and you know that was an ageing membership base so for them it was how do we build a, an advocacy with our brand and we could do this through an esports so the team of the Bombers now we're black and red and their view is you know as these young girls and guys who are a bomber members through esports become older and may want to go to the footy with their friends and their families that the the association to that brand has been curated over you know three to five year period and the the chance of them participating and rolling into an, an additional football club membership at some stage through that life cycle is probably higher than it would be by just cold calling these guys so um i knew they they understood the problem they had they knew that we had some level of uh, a, a solution to that problem. Um, it's still a lot of hard work to go into that, but they understood the audience and they understood that there's a reason to be there. And that's why I think you see football clubs around the world, you see NBA clubs around the world, 
You're seeing more and more traditional sporting clubs invest um, because they're looking to build uh, brand advocacy with an audience that nearly every brand and every sport in the world struggles to speak to right now. Um, and it's the digital native who's 13 to 23 who doesn't consume sport or media the traditional way that potentially you or I did. One of those functional areas you mentioned in that partnership is sponsorship. Give us a lie of the land in terms of the Bombers eSports team's sponsorship portfolio. Yeah, so uh, the Bombers ourselves, we have uh, four partners uh, in our sponsorship portfolio. And again, when we purchased and took over the team, we went through a, a bit of a restructure in the way that we did it. Again, like traditional sport, we've got front of jersey sponsors, we've got side sleeves, we've got backs, um, which are great brand assets uh, when it comes to the brand association. But content creation is a big piece for us as well, obviously being a, a very much a digital platform that not only is the sport played on, but what people consume on. So um, we've got some endemic sponsors. So HyperX has always been a major partner of the Abyss team, now Bombers team, um, and Predator, which is, again, um, hardware that's provided into the esports region. So we've got those traditional brands uh, of esports, which is which is great. But I think what we've been able to do with ESE coming into the business and then our partnership with the Bombers is bring, you know, non-traditional esports brands into the space. Uh, we recently had a partnership uh, with Virgin Australia, which is their first foray into esports in Australia. Uh, they sponsored the Bombers Boot Camp. The guys were just in LA for two weeks training over there and competing against North American teams. Uh, we produced a seven to eight content piece series, which is on our website and uh, on our Facebook page through there. And we were able to to build a relationship that you know wasn't necessarily around traditional assets and was around engaging with our athletes and our stars and their journey in North America, which was great for us. Uh, and we're soon to announce. Uh, a brand new major partner uh, for the second split, uh, which I'm happy to to let the podcast listeners know. Uh, exclusive. This is an exclusive. It is. It is outstanding. This could be I our first double- ever exclusive. To be fair, Ron. I did double check with the bombers this morning to make sure it was okay, and uh, we're right to go. But Jam Headphones will be uh, a major partner uh, of the Essendon Bombers esports team, which is great. Um, they're a, a headphone. Uh, part of the Seoul Republic brand. Uh, Seoul Republic are actually a partner with the Bombers team. But again, it wasn't just because they were part of the Bombers football club that they came to us. When we sat down uh, with Michael from Seoul Republic, he had a headphone that sort of fitted this demographic. He understood the guys had leisure and relaxing time where they sat around and listened to music. Um, And now we're not only doing that piece with, with the guys at Jam Headphones, which is fantastic for us, but, you know, Jam are really looking forward to sitting down with our players and, and having a look at can they build out a gaming-specific headphone that then becomes a product that they launch as potentially a global product um, and understanding the nuances from our professional players is what's required uh, in a gaming headphone. So, yes, we've got the traditional sponsorship and you know creating content for these guys and, and working through our Twitch channels with them, but we're going to sit down on the journey now and potentially create a gaming exclusive headphone for this brand that they've never had before and, and open up a new market and revenue stream, which to me is what partnerships need to be. Um, yes, we can we can do it through the power of the brand to, to help them sell more headphones through our players, but if we can work with them on innovation to create a new product, um, you know, that's that's an exciting proposition for us. Absolutely. And the, the, the integral part there is that the, the, the team and the players would have had 
input and and feedback and ownership of the product that they're then positioning to their target audience rather than them just coming along and saying oh, we endorse it and it was already here absolutely and you know i think like anything in in the world you've if there's an expert or professional that that in you know has been part of a journey of building a product, it, it does give it that little bit more push in in the market to to create it as an authentic product. Very good, and we will also listeners will put uh, a link to those seven or eight content pieces that Ron just mentioned about the team's boot camp in North America. We'll put those in the show notes on the website now, Ron. Is the team, this might sound a little bit like a controversial question, so I'm a bit nervous about asking no, it, but is, is the team really part of Essendon FC or is it more a case of simply leveraging the Bombers brand but the team is really just a side entity? The easiest way to explain that is when the Bombers had uh, their opening night for the season and announced the captains for the football club, the captains for the esports team were announced on the same night in the same platform on the same room. Um, so I think that shows how truly integrated our team is into the to the the Essendon Football Club as a model. And to to be honest, from an ESE perspective, it was one of the high priorities when looking for a partner. Um, we didn't want it to be a side project. Uh, our players had their own space at the hangar out at Essendon. Uh, it's called the flight deck, and it's where the guys train and scrim and play every day. Uh, so they're truly integrated into the process of that team. The guys work internally. Our general manager of our esports business, Nathan Matthews, who was the owner of Abyss prior, has a desk, works full-time out of the Essendon Football Club. All our players are full-time employees of the Essendon Football Club. Uh, the high-performance coach and team actually train the guys on a physical basis um, for health and wellness. Uh, we work with the content teams internally, sponsorship teams work with our guys on a daily basis uh it's very much an integrated process and we wouldn't have had it any other way the guys need to feel like they're part of something bigger and hats off again to the Essendon football club uh and the players particularly they've been outstanding in bringing these guys into the club and you know making them really feel welcome presenting them with jerseys they truly feel like they're part of something bigger and they are was it ever a challenge working with staff and supporters of a traditional football club who might not have really had a good appreciation of esports? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the space that we, we live and work in in esports still is a relatively unknown and, and it's easy to, to, I guess, cast doubt around what an esports team is. But as I've sort of mentioned before, we, we couldn't have found a better partner with this football club it, them as an organisation integrating our team members and our, our staff and you know it's it's always a question for the fans out there and I know the Adelaide Football Club the Crows with Legacy um, probably face similar issues in when the teams aren't going well and you know Essendon aren't performing on the on the football field right now you know fans question why you have other investments um, you know why aren't we focused on footy but I would say the majority and the core who learn a little bit about esports and understand the strategy behind this and actually see it as a real positive because the long-term goal is to make the, the club stronger. And when you make the club stronger internally and commercially, that only helps the guys out on the football field or in that esports team. And uh, overall, it's been, you know, it, it's always a challenge integrating any business, 
whether you're an esports business into a footy club or you're, you know, two two businesses in the Sydney CBD merging, there's there's always that change of culture and something new. And some people don't like change, but all in all, I think now that we've proved that the integration can be done and and is providing success through content and creating new fans for the club, it's it's something that everyone's really on board with and, and pushing hard. You spoke about integrations nearly always being a challenge. It's a reasonably well-worn path. You're not the first ever organisations in the world to, to integrate and, and work together. So some of those challenges we can foresee, we know what they're going to be. They still might be difficult, but we know potentially that they're coming. What about any challenges that just popped up that you just weren't prepared for that made you sit back and go, oh, wow, we're going to deal with this one? Uh to be honest, no, there wasn't anything that was, you know, you try to plan, you try to foresee and predict what these challenges will be and we probably got 80% of them right and 20% that we worried about didn't come to fruition, which is even better. Uh, but there was nothing that drastically stood out as to, to how hard uh, an integration would be. I, I think a challenge that we, we worked with pretty clearly at the start with the football club was obviously by having a shared resource type of system is you know the, the amount of time and effort that is put into to each of them you know that we as the esports club understand the football club is much bigger and more significant in an overall business scheme and you have to understand where you sit in a hierarchy inside a, a business and, and that's not saying that you know one is better than the other on face value but we're there to, to grow the business and brand as a whole um, and you need to understand where you fit inside that business to make sure your business works exceptionally well and, and the benefit of that business therefore helps the bigger business. Um, what we had a, a fantastic surprise on the upside was was there was probably 10 to 12 people inside the organisation who were keen gamers uh, who the business didn't know about. And when we when they told the business that an esports team was coming, there was people jumping out of their skin to help and work in that space and add value to it because it is a unique space and you do need traditional gamers and gaming people who understand that space to, to really dive into it. So it was uh, it was great to see that that lift and help from, from people inside the organisation. Very fortuitous because any significant change or integration needs champions almost at at every level to help keeping it move forward so very fortuitous that you had those in there and and activating them to to help and and they want to see it be successful what about you talk about working together full integration there's the functional areas of the business how has it worked with or how have you leveraged Essendon's existing sponsorship team to help the esports team We've worked really closely with them is, is the easiest way to do it. And I think when you when you look to, to bring a business in and merge it in under a brand, you you have to do that. And Woody Reid, who sort of heads up the sponsorship department at the Essendon Football Club, is obviously a, a very, very good professional in the space, uh, has great knowledge into obviously football and sport. Uh, combined with us, dovetailing esports has, has been great for us. I think it's worked well for both parties in the sense that We've been able to reach a, a solid, developed network of people and provide them with a new opportunity uh, and a potential to reach a new audience, which excites existing partners. Uh, but it's also allowed the Essendon Football Club, I guess, to have conversations that they may not have been able to have with certain brands because it was unrelatable. Now they have an asset that is new, has a new demo, and is different to football. Uh, it's opened doors for, for both parties on both sides of the fence. 
So what sort of opportunities have arisen from the existing sponsorship program or the wider Essendon network that was already there before the esports team integrated? Yeah, the new partnership with Jam's obviously one that's, you know, front of mind and, and foremost has been probably the, the easiest one to have that that conversation with. They had a, a great relationship with Seoul Republic and, and a partnership there with uh, a sponsorship this year and integration with the players and the extension of that into a different demographic, a different product, creating greater reach, but, you know, still representing the overarching brand with two different assets was a, a really good key. Uh, the Virgin Australian partnership is probably a, another one, you know, in the sense that, you know, Virgin are the official airline of the AFL as a whole. Uh, we had a relationship from an ESE perspective with the marketing department that we'd been speaking esports broadly. There's a link to the footy club with, being a major partner there and the synergy of combining an AFL partnership back down to a club level, linking it to ESC's relationships and, and growth in commercial esports, then made it a future of this partnership for someone like a Virgin because it still had a link into the traditional sporting space for them. Do you see a time, or maybe it's already happened, where there will be a real integration of sponsorships with the Bombers in terms of a sponsor coming on board and they'll have a portfolio of benefits, some of which will be football-based and some of which will be eSports. But the line is so blurred that it is just a sponsorship of both those entities, those rights holders, at the same time. Or is there is there longer-term value in there being a bit of a separation there? I think there's positives and negatives to both. I think I touched on the, you know, the separation piece probably a little bit earlier in that uh, you can actually take new assets to the market and speak to brands that you've never spoken to before from a footy club perspective, which is an exciting opportunity for them. But I think in the consumer space that we speak with and the brands that we speak with, uh, I think nearly every brand in the world that sells a, a consumable item you know, is really focused on this 13 to 25 market and understanding how do we actually speak to these people. Uh, and, and eSports is obviously a, a major player and, and platform in doing that. And I think what we'll find uh, as we go down this journey and, and relationship with the Essendon Football Club is, for instance, if, you know, we were to, to speak to a car brand uh, out there and, you know, Kia being a partner of the Essendon Football Club is they've probably got different cars for different brackets uh, of ages and different demographics. Now, uh, the ability to to have one whole sole sponsorship across both is that allows them to have a distribution pl- platform for different products, um, not just the demographic of the footy club. It allows them to speak to the demographic of the esports team, albeit using the overarching brand but displaying different products. So uh, I think for brands, it creates an exciting opportunity that, allows them to speak to people 13 to the 65, 70, which football clubs have, um, and deliver unique messages around different product offerings while still being a major partner of of the Bombers. I think an interesting aspect that I find, and I only just thought of it as you were speaking, is if there's a traditional sponsor, they sponsor the Bombers or another football club, and we know that sponsorship agreements don't always run perfectly. They might not be delivering the results they want because it's so much more broader. And, and there may be a time where there's more elements added into a football club like eSports, but in different areas, where it gives 
the the overall rights holder and the sponsoring brand the opportunity to pivot and, and almost go down into other areas of demographics and adjust the sponsorship to see if that can give them results? Absolutely. And I, I think one of the, the great advantages of esports over uh, traditional sports is the access to data. You know, our games are played online. We know who the consumer is. They log in. Uh, we record the amount of time they're on there. We understand their behaviours and movement because we're a digital sport. Um, that in-depth knowledge that we have of our consumer can then, you know, create some smarts and, and help the organisation across multiple platforms and multiple opportunities that they have. What are some of the unique benefits that an esports team can offer their partners that a traditional sports team can't? Is it that data or is it something else? Start is obviously a big play and, you know, I, I don't want to be another agency that bangs on about data, uh, but we do live in a data-driven world and the more and more that you know your consumer, um, the more chance you are of converting them into selling them the product that you want. Uh, I think what really excited me about an esports team uh, to the outside world and one of the reasons that we invested privately in a team, you know, before most people in, in the Australian space was it had the opportunity to speak to an audience that no one else could. Uh, and every brand that I'd sat down sitting in Australian Surf Club or Rugby League World Cup were always looking at how do I speak to that younger demographic. Australia is a high-spending market. People have reasonable incomes between, you know, the 18 to 25 mark, and those high-dispensable incomes are, are spenders. And, you know, when you have a look at a game like League of Legends, uh, biggest game in the world, and Overwatch, probably, you know, second or third largest game in the world. When you speak to both of those publishers, and I spent eight days in the US only uh, three weeks ago meeting with all the publishers, all the arenas, and all the teams, is the one message that comes out is Australian market are, are early adopters. Um, there's nearly two million players between both of those games registered here in Australia, uh, and they have the highest per capita spends of gamers of any region in the world, which is mind-boggling, really, when you think about who we are and, and how we operate. So we provide a window and, and a, an ability to access uh, a high-spending young demographic who consume differently, and that's not what traditional sport can do. It's a strong position to come from, and you're obviously addressing, as you said, the issue of, uh, of brands accessing and speaking to the younger market. Apart from the traditional brands that would be involved in esports like hardware and software and, and things like that, what are some of the hurdles in starting a sponsorship partnership discussion with a non-traditional esports brand? <laughs> I've had many of them, let me tell you. Uh, it's esports 101 is is nearly where you need to go back to and and by no means am i the the smartest gaming brain uh, out there or have the most in-depth knowledge of of esports but through spending three and a bit years intimately in the space i you know i think we we as an organization esc probably uh understands the landscape better than most and we've been able to advise Brands strategically have a partnership with the Bombers, which is probably the most significant uh, transaction in Australian esports, and now work with with other companies around what their strategy is. But I think the first thing that we we try to do when we when we step back uh, and sit down with either brands or, or speak to people about a partnership is get them to understand the landscape and and actually what it is. Because um, as I said earlier in the podcast, is some significant big numbers that get thrown around a lot, uh, large audiences, large broadcast audiences, and to be honest, they don't exist here yet. Um, 
They've grown significantly in the three years that I've been involved. We've doubled nearly year on year in audience across a number of the esports. Nielsen Research published a, a really good piece, The Playbook, uh, I think in March, which sort of breaks down the audience a little bit more. Um, it's it's very much about understanding that there's gaming, which there's probably about 11 million people who are classified as gamers in Australia, and that's everything from Candy Crush to Sega to PlayStation to guys playing League of Legends, Dota, Fortnite. Now, that is an esports. When you think esports, esports is a sport, um, and it is the professional level, the top end, which you know equates to probably less than 1% of that gaming community actually sit in esports. And they're the guys who sit inside League of Legends teams like ours at the Bombers. Uh, and that's sort of the marketing broadcast commercial arm of, of what we do. But there's these big communities that sit underneath it who, like traditional sport, look up to these professional players and follow leagues and are engaged. That is where the real bang for buck comes from. Um, it's, you know, League of Legends, I believe at the moment we're doing about 20,000 people broadcast for a weekend of gaming. Uh, not huge. Uh, Super Rugby games probably do about forty to 50,000. Um, so comparatively, it's pretty good, but you can't be sitting there comparing it to the AFLs and the NRLs of the world where they're doing seven, eight hundreds to, to millions. You've got to look at a different view that, you know, we're at a, we're at a point, you know, you've got to remember these games are 100-plus year old. We're probably year three in esports in Australia. Uh, we're on a pretty steep curve and uh, come along in the journey, understand that we've got really engaged audiences um, in a community that uh, respectful and actually like sponsors, uh, which came out of the Nielsen research, which a lot of people thought they didn't, but they they are fans of people who sponsor their sport and, and are advocates to it. One of the, the really great stats that, that I enjoy is um, I think of League of Legends split one 2017, which would have been last year. Uh, there was circa about 26,000 people that watched all 119 hours of that split. Um, now, that is phenomenal engagement. And there's not many sports that would have that level of engagement of watching every game, every minute, end-to-end. Uh, and the same sort of feeds through to the time that they spend on uh, on screen when they're either playing gaming or, or transacting with, with streamers in the games themselves. So an engaged audience where we're growing and there's an opportunity to come on what is going to be a pretty significant ride, but don't come in here thinking that, year one's going to knock it out of the park is probably the easiest way to start with these guys. And and there's probably also some apprehension from traditional non-esports brands about you know, sitting back and seeing what's happening in this space. But if they do want to maybe dip their toe in the water rather than just jumping in with a full-blown sponsorship, if they want to put their toe in the water around esports sponsorship, what's the best way that they can go about seeing whether it's suitable for them? I think all of these partnerships when you come into esports for the first time should be a dip in the toe. And I would suggest that a sponsorship inside an OPL of League of Legends, an Overwatch team, you know, investments can be as small as ten to $20,000. And, you know, we, we have a partner that sits in around that space um, up to about $100,000, Um So we're not talking huge numbers, um, but... The reason that you, we've got to do that in this space is to make sure that we deliver for brands uh, and we don't get into a very similar predicament that we saw 15 years ago with the word digital um, and everyone wanted to be in the digital space and we had tech booms and things like that because brands will get burned if you know people looking for half a million dollars here and $300,000 here 
the return's just not there from what we're seeing from the underlying assets and what's being delivered. You can create some great content with advocacy and, and engagement for small amounts of money with good partnerships with brand integration to deliver a message and, and come on the journey for the next two or three years and, you know, the investment will increase as audiences increase and we go from there. But it's, you know, you, it's not the big numbers that people talk about overseas and we need to, to take brands on that journey because we don't want to be in the position where we have a, a three-year void where we've, you know, burnt and torched brands through under-delivery of, of what we've got because of global hype and we want to, we want to build a really strong community of esports e supporters across all platforms and all brands. You know, yes, we have a League of Legends team, but for me, I want esports in Australia to grow holus bolus, not just in one single game. And I want all the teams in my league to be successful because by having one team being successful over the other and, and being too dominant doesn't help anyone. We see that in the English Premier League with the top sort of four or five clubs every year pretty much dominating the competition. Exactly. Rom, are there unique benefits that an esports team can offer that traditional rights holders can't yeah I, I guess i guess there is um and it's probably the ability to to be part of part of the team if if that's probably the the way to do it i think the accessibility to um the team in the sense that uh we allow opportunities through some of our partners for their consumers or or their staff even um, to be in the game or part of the game as our guys scrim, which is training, um, listen to the comms of the guys. So, you know, it's, I suppose it's like taking guys down to a footy field and, you know, everyone sits back and you watch them kick around, but you're, you're sort of not part of it because you can't hear what the coach says. You can't see what the tactics are or what they're doing. But we can take people virtually inside the game because of the digital nature of it. Um, and they feel like they sit there in the team and listen and hear every move from coach to player uh, and be part of it. So, you know, the old inner sanctum, inner circle piece probably goes to the next level. Um, and the other piece is, I guess, because our guys are, you know, digital natives and, and always on, uh, you know, when they scrim or train in solo queue, which is individual play, uh, fans have the ability to, to tune in and watch these guys and ask them questions live. Um, it's not as if you can sort of sit there and yell out at Heppel and ask him questions as he's about to kick a kick a Sharon. Um, but these guys can sit there, see chats rooms in in their Twitch feeds as they practice and answer questions and and help solve problems for the fans in the community um, as they're training. So that's that's pretty unique in sport um, to be able to engage with an elite athlete during their training session um, and get tips. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, clean slate. Blank page, if you could sell any asset in esports, whether it's linked to a player, a team, or a competition, whether it's existing or just something you'd love to see develop that you've had this cool idea and you think, geez, it'd be great to offer that to a sponsor, what would it be and why? <laughs> uh, crystal balling. It's, uh, it's, I think there's, and I know there's a little bit of chatter around the world and it probably goes into the game itself, so not talking about a team or a player or an asset, but there is the ability and, you know, I, I'd love to see it get to this space and it's probably going to need sponsorship help and, and development to get to it. But a game like League of Legends is the, the field of play is what we call a map. Um, a map isn't too dissimilar to a, a rectangle or an oval, but there is the opportunity through, I guess, 3D animation and, and graphics to be able to, there's no reason why a game of League of Legends can't be played at the SCG 
using the football field as the playing surface and the players are 3D and virtual as they play the game and you know, 45,000 people look down onto the map as it's being played live um, and being able to integrate sponsors into that live map like you would tr- do traditional sport, I think is, a, is an ultimate end goal um, to watch, you know, holographic figurines of a live game being played in the middle of an arena as 45,000 people watch that versus on a flat screen um, with true broadcast integration and, and traditional sport sponsor integration would be would be phenomenal. That's probably 10, 20 years away. Let's do some more crystal balling, but let's bring it right back into a five-year period. It's obviously a rapidly evolving space and you seem to have a reasonable amount of leeway to develop your sponsorship and commercial programs which gives it some freedom that probably other rights holders don't have. So I'm interested in how you see sponsorship in esports evolving over the next five years. Yeah, I, I think one of the keys to to esports in being let's let's call it infant um, for the sake of of this. Yeah, it's we're probably as I said we're I would say three to four years in a professional sense here in Australia, probably closer to three, if not two. Uh, you know, globally, League of Legends now has been going for for nine years in a in an esports professionalism space. Uh, what we're able to do is, as we're trying to grow the pie and try to grow the business, you you kind of have the ability because you, you need the support of fantastic partners, not just commercially but through their reach, um, is to probably open the doors a little bit more um, than traditional sport would be and bring people. Uh, inside the, the inner sanctum to, to understand uh, the mechanics and operation of what you do a little bit better. Uh, and no idea is a stupid idea, essentially, in esports. Uh, you know, if, if clients want to, to do something or, or try something or create new assets uh, that may be digital, that may be physical, uh, to roll out as, as part of their partnership where all is, uh, we have the ability and I guess we're uh, Ryder, a fantastic publisher and have a, a great level of governance, but um, they're also pretty flexible in us being able to to generate assets and create assets that help us commercialise our team and grow our team. So, you know, I, five years is, you know, a crystal ball, something that was probably 20 years away, but you bring it back to, to how it will evolve over the next five years is I think we'll start to see, you know, a lot more virtual digital in-game sponsorship less away from traditional assets and ways that people can engage and consume the events, the players, um, and natively integrate into those spaces. Uh, the community is is pretty pretty tight-knit on, you know, just plastering things all over the space, but creating it in a, a user-friendly, seamless UI way that, you know, sponsorship virtually seems like it's, uh, it's part of the game itself and, and part of how you consume it on second screen. Very exciting the way it's it could potentially develop and obviously going to be activated by technology and, and the technology becoming better in that space. So that is very exciting. What, what's your advice to sponsorship professionals who want to learn more about esports, keep up to date with what's going on in the industry? Speak to as many people as you can. Uh, you know, I, our door's always open here at ESE. Uh, I know Dave Harris has been fantastic with Die Wolves and, and their promotion uh, Nine Smart down at the Adelaide Crows is always open. The guys at Riot, Daniel Ringland and the team, the guys at Blizzard are, are great to speak to as well. I think, um, as I probably 
banged on a little bit too much. There, there are some big, scary numbers out there and a, and a lot of hype. Um, you know, the old saying of don't believe everything you read. Sit down with teams, sit down with players. Uh, you know, to me, having dinner with the players uh, on, a, on a weekly basis when we first purchased this team was the most valuable insight for me uh, in the world of esports and, and understanding it firsthand from a professional player and understanding the nuances of the games and the language. Um, really dive down to the core of the product understand the products, then understand the community uh, and then try to apply uh, traditional sports and sponsorship commercialisation. Don't go the other way. Uh, if you try to bring a cookie-cutter sponsorship approach uh, to esports from your traditional landscape, which, hey, can work to an extent, uh, it won't always be best fit for the esports space. So spend time with the professionals. There's guys who have been working you know, 10 to 15 years in this space who are fantastic guys, really smart, and happy to share their, their wares. Um, sit down and have as many conversations as you can. As I said, um, I'm always here to, to more than happy to have conversations with people about the space because the more you learn and the more we educate the, the broader group around the space, I think the better off everyone will be. Well, on that front, Rowan, if people want to get in contact with you, find out more about ESC or the Bombers eSports team, what can they do? Our website's probably best for us, esetheagency.com. Uh, my contact details there, my business partner's details there, and I can open doors into to our team, the Bombers, uh, into publishers, and more than happy to sit down and have a, a coffee or a cup of tea with anyone to, to talk esports. Rowan Sawyer, Managing Director at Executive Sports and Entertainment, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and taking us inside the Bombers esports team. Not a problem at all. It's been great to chat. I don't know about you, but there is a lot to take in there and digest, and it seems scary, almost bordering on overwhelming the potential that esports has in the commercial space. I think that more and more of you in the not-too-distant future will come head-to-head with esports in competition for sponsorship as more and more traditional brands consider sponsoring esports to engage what is a hard-to-reach demographic. Thanks again to Rowan for joining us on the show. If you'd like to connect with Rowan, find out more about Bombers Esports or Executive Sports and Entertainment, just head along to the show notes at sponsor.net where you'll find all the relevant links. Also, don't forget, if you'd like a shout-out, just get in contact. Don't leave me hanging for another episode and I'll make that shout-out happen. We'd really love to hear from you. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Sponserve's general manager product, Sam Irvine, you can email him on sam at sponserve.net or also find him on LinkedIn. Don't forget that you can also follow Sponserve on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.